I am glad that you're here this morning. We're jumping back into the E2E study, and uh, this is something we started back in November and um, got four weeks into it, and then along came COVID, took me out for a couple weeks, and then along came Christmas, and here we are back to this. So what you're going to hear this morning, I actually prepared for November 7th, and, and I was so excited to share it then, and now I'm looking forward to bringing it to you this morning. So I have this uh, little booklet here. If you're new to New Hope, this is free, and these are in the atrium. You can pick them up after the service. Um, these are kind of a study guide, and they're a devotional guide, essentially. So there's a study in there for each week. If you're part of a small group, you especially are going to want one of these, but they'll help you as we work through the series. So this is book one. It's got the first nine in it. We're actually going from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation with the E2E study. So get prepared. There'll be a few of these coming around, and you'll be able to store them up. Um, but for this morning, for the material we're covering right now, You'll find actual uh, notes for what we're going to go over. Back behind that pillar, if you didn't get one this morning when you came in, they're on a table back there. Feel free to get up during the service and grab one if you want. Or you can go online and you can download it right from the website and uh, you'll have it electronically that way. I'm looking forward to praying with you before we step into this and we, we really get to concentrate on what Michael just pointed us towards. When he took us to that song, Be Thou My Vision, it's the understanding that as we look forward at 2022, all that we are, if you're a Christ follower, should be focused on who Christ is in your life so that at the end of 22, you could look back and say, yeah, I did that. I kept Jesus at the center of my life. Would that not be a great goal? Right? That'd be a fantastic goal if you could say that. That is true of me. I look back on 2022 and that's what I did. I focused on Christ throughout that year. I'm going to help you with that this morning as we jump into this material, and I think you're going to get a picture of the massiveness of God as we get started with the creation story. So before we do that, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Let's pray together, church. Father, I pray for every single soul in this auditorium and every single soul who's part of our virtual church community, that you would use these things to magnify yourself that you would be glorified, but also that you would use this opportunity to make the presence of the Holy Spirit real in our lives to the degree that we're, we're taught by you, that your Spirit would be present in amplifying these things that we're looking at. In the way that you would apply it to our life, God, it's going to be as many times as the people that are represented. So, God, you know us in such an individual, specific way. You can speak individually to us and corporately at the same time. We pray that you would do that. We pray that you would use this to speak to your body for the edification of the church and for the purpose of drawing people who are not yet in relationship with you into the place where they're really willing to understand who you are. God, I ask that you would speak to us in that way. In Jesus' magnificent name and all God's people said. When it comes to creation... The matter of origins is absolutely crucial to all human thought and how we conduct our lives. I would say to you that whether this universe evolved or was intentionally created by a God has immense implications for all of human life. It becomes really a a dividing point in how you see God. 
Now, obviously, this issue has been hotly debated for 200 years, roughly. It has been around, obviously, since the time of Darwin, somewhat before that. Individuals are trying to understand, and it really boils down to your view of God. But I would contend this. Without an understanding of your origins, there is no way to understand your purpose in life, and there's no way to understand your destiny. You have to understand your origins. So as it relates to creation, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm going to take the Moses approach to this. You may not be familiar with it, but Moses is actually considered to be the author of the book of Genesis, that God revealed to Moses information, and he wrote down the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So I'm going to take the Moses approach, and by that I mean this. There is no attempt on Moses' part to explain it. Rather, he just declares it. And that's the approach that we're going to take. So we're going to jump into the issues of creation. I just want to remind you of where we've been in the first four weeks so we can get into creation in just a moment. Just let me take you back to November where we were at. In week one, we looked at the eternality of God and tried to wrap our minds around this reality that God stands above time and he sees it as present. So because of this, he always knows the end from beginning. He knows it right now. He sees it right now. He sees that issue in your life that you're stressing over. Whatever it is that you're frustrated over, you can't figure out how it's going to play out in your life, God already sees the end of it, and he's not freaking out by it. He certainly understands it because he spoke matter and time and space into existence. So he's not limited by matter and space and time. He can change the circumstances in a moment if he wants to. So he isn't surprised by those things. In week two, we saw the amazing beauty of the Trinity and how the Trinity works together, how the Godhead functions in harmony as one collective. And they do that not only to bring glory to the Godhead, but they do that on our behalf. Now, according to Genesis chapter one, they're not in competition with each other, but rather in complement to each other. So when you open up the book of Genesis, you find the Godhead working to build this thing called the cradle of life. And by that, I mean the universe and this planet that we're on, all for the purpose of bringing glory to God. In the week uh, that was three, the week following, that, that was the week we looked at angels. And we saw some degree of spiritual warfare when we looked at angels. And we discovered that they're bigger, stronger, smarter, faster than us. They're very, very ancient. To the degree that God said they were actually present at the moment of creation, when all the sons of God shouted for joy, they're that old. And then in week four, which would have just preceded what you're going to hear this morning, we learned about the rebellion and how in pride Lucifer fell and he took a third of the angels of heaven with him and we call them today demons and how in pride that rebellion triggered something in heaven. He didn't just fall spiritually in rebellion, he fell from heaven, and Jesus makes the most remarkable statement in the New Testament. Look with me on the screen at this, it comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10. Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And I said to you at the time, that is absolutely loaded with intrigue. Like, I want to know more about what's going on behind that statement. Because if Jesus says, I saw it happen... It leads to a really obvious conclusion. 
He was present. This is the time before time, before God the Son became Jesus the man, before God condescended to become Jesus on this planet. Well, of course he saw it. Of course he was present because God the Son has always existed. Not only that truth, but the Bible also verifies that not only was Jesus there, but all that is exists because he spoke it into existence. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Jesus spoke, God the Son. God the Father made everything through God the Son. And that's consistent with what you find in Colossians 1.16. It says this, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Meaning all that we know and all that we see And everything you are going to look at in the next few weeks ahead of us, from the tiniest of bugs to the most massive of stars, all that we will examine in the weeks ahead, according to the Bible, came to be because God spoke. Now, knowing that shapes my worldview. Knowing that shapes how I see myself and my perspective of God, and it challenges me to want to go deeper. And speaking of going deeper, I want to know more about this God who communicates and how He communicates. Because the Bible says He communicates to me, He communicates to you, and we see it right at the very beginning. So I want you to count as we go through these first few verses here, how many times you see God communicating. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Watch this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, there's communication, let there be light, and there was light. And we'll get into the specifics of the light issue later, but let's keep going. Go with me to verse 6. Then God said, communication, let there be expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. Verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater lights to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. Verse 20. Then God said, communication, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Last one, verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts on the earth after their kind. Final verse, verse 31, then God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And you see God communicating, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Obviously, it's commands from God, but it's God communicating. He's communicating something to Moses that he wanted you to know. He said, Moses, I want you to write this down. Let people know these things. 
When I read all of those verses, I need perspective, and perspective is absolutely crucial. And here's why it's crucial. I know it's crucial for me, and I'm sure it's crucial for you. Because I become so absorbed with the issues of the day that I lose perspective. And I become guilty of majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Anybody else do that? Like three of you? Okay. All right. We're in a small club, apparently. Now, I know, the, I know we all do that. I, I need to be reminded in 2022 that God can be my vision. That we started out with that song is no accident. That's the leading of the Holy Spirit. That we could come to the end of 2022 and look back over this year and say, God was my vision through this. I need perspective. I need to be reminded of how great this God is. Perspective is absolutely crucial. So I find in 2022, I need a larger view of God. This is a day to root yourself, to re-root yourself in understanding the greatness of your God. I just want to remind you what I just said. God is a communicator. And this communication tool that we use in our lives, it's an expression of our heart. It's part of the God image that's been built into you. You were created in the image of God according to His Word. Part of the God image in you is the desire to communicate. Humans crave communication. There are massive industries that are built around this reality. The cell phone industry exists because we crave communication. Starbucks would be a very lonely place if there were only one chair at every table. We get that. We desire to communicate with each other. That's why the news media exists in the way that it does. It communicates. Communication is born of God. It's part of the image of God. And many people, when they're new to the Bible, find it surprising that what God is actually doing with the Bible is He's speaking. God speaks to you. That's why He gave us the Bible. It's a book of communication. It's what theologians call special revelation. Things that we couldn't know on our own, God chooses to reveal to us through special revelation, and He moves the authors of the Word of God to write these things down. Let me show you this to back up what I'm saying from Scripture, 2 Peter 1.20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God moved in the hearts of those individuals, the Holy Spirit directed them, and they wrote down what God showed them to write down. Now, that's special revelation. We're not going into that so much today as we are natural revelation. It's another form of God's communication. In other words, what does nature reveal or general revelation sometimes it's called? I don't know of any passage in Scripture that captures it better than Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. King David wrote this down thousands of years ago. Let me show you what he recorded. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. There's communication. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So just pause there for a second. King David is writing that 24-7, everything in nature speaks of a Creator God. Let's keep going. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. In other words, it's a silent revelation, but it's an unmistakable, clear revelation. Keep going. 
Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. So King David is saying very clearly, don't let anyone tell you that God has hidden himself. Every single intelligent being is under a constant reminder of God's presence and his power. So you have to step back and say, well, how do people miss that then? Well, the Bible shows that really it's only stubborn human rebellion that causes humans to miss God's message. If you want to dive a little bit deeper with me, let's go down into Psalm 19, verse 1, just a little bit clearer because I want to see what it's referring to when it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The solar systems and the galaxies and all of space, according to the authors of the Bible, carry a really loud message of God communicating. I'm just going to rabbit trail with you for a second. I've told you before, I'm not sure it's a rabbit trail if I tell you in advance it's a rabbit trail, but bear with me. In, in Romans chapter 10, Paul brings forward the same thought when he actually quotes Psalm 19, and he seems to do it almost mockingly. I want you to see this. Romans 10, 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He's quoting Psalm 19 in those last two sentences. And he's saying to a group of individuals, if you back up in Romans chapter 10, you'll find individuals he's speaking to who are really questioning God's activity. And he's saying to them, how could you not see it? The line has gone throughout all the earth. How could you miss it? Now, in context, understand, in the Mediterranean region where Paul is working at this particular time, people could claim a lack of opportunity to hear. They could say, I've not heard of this thing about God, and in all fairness, that should be considered. Like maybe you've stopped to think before about somebody living in Russia the year before Jesus was born. They'd never heard of Jesus. Or somebody living in the Amazon jungles 100 years after Jesus. Or 500 years before him. How could they have a chance if they've never heard these things? So in all fairness, it should be considered. So the question the Bible presents is this. Has there been legitimate opportunity for everyone to hear? And Paul's saying in Romans 10, 18, of course, and he uses Psalms 19 to support his position by saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. The voice and the words have gone out. So when it says the voice and the words have gone out, it's referring to God's revelation, which has been proclaimed to everyone who has ever lived or ever will live or presently is living, that they all have the evidence of God. And now that's kind of an echo of Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul was arguing those who don't see, they actually don't see because they refuse to see. They're suppressing the truth. So let me just sum this up before we jump into the creation aspect. Paul's stating that God's message delivered by nature actually precedes the gospel. It went out there before the gospel message, making all humans without excuse. And if you really want to drill down into it, you find that Paul often used the aspect of creation before he ever actually witnessed about the gospel. He went to individuals saying, you got to know about this one. You, you need perspective on who this one is. So perspective number one, this perspective, God is a communicator. Perspective number two, God is a communicator who demands humanity pay attention to the obvious. 
And both the Old Testament and the New Testament say together, look at the universe. It talks. It reveals the massiveness of his being. Genesis chapter 1 is where I want to root you in as we jump into the creation component and remind you of what Moses wrote. We looked at this in week 1 in the eternity aspect. Look with me on the screen at this. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So taking together everything we've just looked at in the last 10 minutes, we find that God directed Moses to express in written special revelation the foundation of all that is, the origins, which I'm saying are crucial to human thought. So here's what Moses wrote. Bereshit Elohim Barah. You might remember that from week one when we were looking at this. Bereshith, Hebrew word, in the beginning. It doesn't say when it was, it just says that it was. Next word, Elohim. Remember this from week one, perhaps? It's the plural form, form of God. And the existence is assumed to be true. There's no attempt on Moses' part to prove the existence of God. And then he uses the word that is unique to the Hebrew people, Jewish people, Barah, and this particular word is used only of God, specifically of only things that God can do. It's never associated with anything that man can do. And it's only used three times in the creation account. Barah, the creation of the universe. Barah, the creation of living things. Barah, the creation of humanity. That's where you find this word used in only of the things that God can do. So, what is the heart of God when he instructs Moses to write, Bereshim, Elohim, Barah? Well, I contend it's communication. God's communication saying, know this, in the beginning, I, the Lord God, took action, I spoke, and created the heavens and the earth. You see the Milky Way galaxy on the screen, which emphasizes, you almost see the Milky Way galaxy on the screen. There you go. Created the heavens and the earth, and it's backed up by Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Just pause for a second. This is saying when God breathes... He breathes out stars. He's a star breather. I want to know more about that. I know there's descriptions in Scripture there that are very vague, and we get bits and pieces, but I want to know more about what this is saying, because it's saying God speaks, and the result is He breathes out stars. So let's look at the product of His action. This next image that you see, this you recognize perhaps as a cluster it's called a, a nebula cluster. More specifically, astronomers don't just refer to it as a nebula cluster. It's, it's a stellar nursery. I don't think I've ever seen a nursery that looked like that, but I want to know more about it. Now, this image captured by Hubble is, is not an artist rendition. This is an actual space image. 
And I want to drill down into it so I understand what this is, this stellar nursery. So the next image I want to give you is of this billowing tower that rises out of the stellar nursery. This one is known as the Eagle Nebula. If you would just take your hand like this, maybe just put it in your, in your lap and just full, close your fist and then pop open your little finger if you're able to you would find that that's what I'm talking about. This eagle nebula is the little finger of the nursery. It's just an appendage. It's a towering, towering, billowing form of stars. And, and hear this. It's 57 trillion miles long. Just, it's gone again. Okay, so <laughs> that stellar nursery... But I want you to hear this description that comes right from NASA. This is from their website. These towering tendrils sit at the heart of the Eagle Nebula. The aptly named pillars of creation featured in this stunning Hubble image are part of an active star forming region within the nebula and hide newborn stars in their wispy columns. I would almost think that was a creationist writing that for NASA. These are called the, the pillars of creation, and they're 57 trillion miles long. I really need perspective when we start using the word trillion, because I'm hearing it all over the place, as though it's just like a dollar. But I need to hear trillion in the way that makes sense for me, so I, I need perspective. And if you were here during the summertime, you probably, during the questions series, the hard questions that we did, heard me use an illustration that demonstrated trillions. I'm going to do that again just to frame your thinking. A million seconds ago, that's 12 days. So what were you doing last week, Tuesday, December 28th? That's a million seconds ago. What were you doing? Returning Christmas gifts? Shopping? Going to work? A million seconds ago, and then a billion. What were you doing a billion seconds ago? Well, that's, that's easier to remember in a large context for me personally, because that's April 1989. And my wife and I were building a house. We're raising three children. Our daughter Mackenzie was not born yet. I'm on radio every day, traveling the Midwest, speaking in churches, flying to Arizona back and forth every six weeks, managing the Arizona ranch from Michigan. I can remember 1989 pretty clearly in bits and pieces. That's a billion seconds ago. What was I doing a trillion seconds ago? Well, I wasn't because that's 29,700 B.C. Right? The difference between billion and trillion is so vast, you can barely comprehend it. Perspective number one, God is a communicator. Perspective number two, God is a communicator that demands that I pay attention to the message. Perspective number three, God is a communicator on a massive scale so that no one can miss it because he has shown himself. So King David records thousands of years ago in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. 
And David records all that time ago that the nighttime sky is revealing a spectacle night after night after night for millennia. He continues to pull back the curtain. So for perspective's sake, I need to stay within our own galaxy as it relates to our solar system. Let's just imagine for a moment that I'm holding a globe in my hand. Everybody who went to school knows what a globe is. You picture the earth. You can see the United States on one side, Russia, China on the other side, that globe spinning. So picture that globe spinning in space. And we're told that in circumference, it's 25,000 miles. And it's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And it's moving through the solar system around the sun at 60,000 miles an hour. The big numbers, the big planet. And we know that it's small, so much smaller than it was before the jet age, but it's still massive. But in contrast to other measurements in the universe, it doesn't seem so big. Because even though 60,000 miles an hour is really, really, really fast, if you could travel at the speed of light, and wanted to go from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other side of the Milky Way galaxy, it would take you 125,000 years moving at the speed of light just to go from one side of our galaxy to the other side. So at the very center of our solar system, obviously, is that solar ball called the sun. We're going to put an image for you up on the screen of our sun, and we've shrunk it down to seven feet. We had to do that, obviously, because it's so big. So the, the tech guys, Derek, tells me that our screens in this auditorium are 9 feet by 12 feet. I asked him if he could make that 7 feet. So we allowed a foot on either side, and you see a little dot up in the top corner that represents the size of a marble. If I was holding a marble in my hand, you would appreciate what you're looking at up there of planet Earth. What we're told by astronomers is that Earth... If it was the size of a marble and the sun was seven feet, you could put 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. Well, let's move beyond our solar system, staying within our galaxy but moving out into the star field, but within our own galaxy. Do you, do you remember what Genesis said about the stars? Look with me at verse 16 again, Romans, uh, Genesis 1. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. That might qualify as the most massive understatement of all time. I want more information. I want more detail. How do I get it? Well, let's get some perspective. And I, I just want to relate three stars to you that I think you're going to find really encouraging to your heart. I did this just three nights ago. Went outside on a very brilliant starry night. When it's a clear night in Michigan, you can find those occasionally. You look up and you find Orion's belt. When you look for Orion's belt, you find Orion the hunter. You might remember that constellation from school. So Orion's belt is really easy to identify because it's three stars in sequence, relation to each other, very symmetrical, seemingly evenly spaced apart, but that's just part of the larger image of Orion the constellation. And Orion is Orion the hunter. And so he's holding weapons in his hand, and he's got a belt. And if you look at his right shoulder, so go out on a nighttime sky and look for the, the right shoulder 
of Orion. And what you're going to see is this very, very brilliant star that astronomers call Betelgeuse, or people like to play with it and call it Betelgeuse. That's fine. If you want to do that, go with it. That particular star is 1,000 times brighter than our sun. It's the second brightest star you can see in the nighttime sky. So when you look at Orion's right shoulder and you see that brilliant star, it's 1,000 times brighter than our sun. But that alone shouldn't just blow your mind. This should. If, if you were to take Earth as a marble and put the sun as seven feet tall, you would absolutely lose place and perspective trying to put the earths inside because we're told that you can put 262 trillion earths inside Betelgeuse. That's how big it is. If you removed that star, our sun, from our solar system and put Betelgeuse at the center of it, you would find that it would fill our solar system all the way to the orbit of planet Earth twice. That's just one star. That's the second brightest star in our nighttime sky. It's a red supergiant. Let me take you to the next one. Musifi. I don't know who names these things. Somebody in astronomy does, but they come up with these names. Musifi, it's a red garnet star. It was discovered by Herschel in 1785 or so, somewhere around there. That particular star that you're looking at is 100,000 times brighter than our sun. It's brighter than all the other stars in the nighttime sky. So when you look for the brightest star that you can see with the naked eye, not with a telescope, you're looking at Musifi, and it's 100,000 times greater, and it's 24 billion miles across. Remember when I said if I'm holding a globe in my hand of the earth and it's spinning and the circumference is 25,000 miles and you come across the star in the nighttime sky that you can see and we're told by astronomy that it's 2.4 billion miles across. If it replaced our sun in our solar system, it would extend beyond the orbit of Saturn. That's how massive it is, but it's not the biggest. Here's the last one which I thought was the biggest, but I've just recently learned there's an even bigger one. But this one I want you to see, Canis Majoris. Call it the big dog. And they call it the big dog for a reason. It's one billion times bigger than our sun. One billion with a B. If you could put Earth inside it, you could put seven quadrillion Earths inside it. We're not using the term trillion anymore. Quadrillion. I don't even know how big that number is. So I wanted to put it on the screen for you in a way that we could appreciate it, but I can't actually do that. You actually can't put a screen in our auditorium big enough to contain it. If the sun was a seven-foot ball like I just showed you earlier, if the sun was a seven-foot ball, just picture a seven-foot door in your house, roughly seven-foot six. If you could shrink the sun down to that size, you would need a movie screen, not as big as the tallest building in the world. You would need a screen big enough to represent 10 of the tallest buildings in the world just to project an image onto it. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, picture this. If you could fly to the big dog with a jet airplane 
and you wanted to go around it one time, it would take you at 700 miles an hour in a jet airplane 1,100 years to go around it one time. How great is our God? He breathes these things out according to Scripture. How great is God? He's awesome. He's staggering beyond comprehension. So you understand when we come to Genesis 1.16 and it says, he made the stars also. I'd have to say Moses gets the award. He gets the gold star for the greatest understatement of all time. Please, Moses, could you not give me more than that? Now, with the perspective of seeing the massiveness of creation, it is very tempting to think, I'm insignificant. And God knows that's your tendency. It's my tendency. Our tendency is to feel so tiny and insignificant, God actually moved one of the authors of the Bible to record that very thought. Look with me. Psalm 8.3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you thought of him? I get that, David. I get why you wrote that down. And they didn't have telescopes available to them. Especially when you discover that these are only the outer workings of God's fingers. That's what Job recorded. Look at this, Job 28, 26, 14. But these are the outer fringes of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? So if you're like King David or you're like Job, you're left feeling like you live life as a bug. You have a bug's life. Maybe that's the way you're feeling right now. Well, let's talk about bugs. I want to go from the macro to the micro for just a second. The United States Natural History Museum actually records that there's 10 million species of insects on our planet, roughly 2,500 varieties of ants. I didn't say 10 million bugs. I said 10 million species of bugs. Included among those are mosquitoes, all of which I think were in my yard last summer. Maybe you too. It was a rough summer for mosquitoes. Watch what Scripture gives you in the way of information on these things. Genesis 1.24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And that's what you get. Those little creepy crawlies with no real detail. So I want to know more. Well, among those creepy crawlies is one of the things I find really fascinating, my wife's not so crazy about, is a moth. So let me give you an image of a moth. Uh, what you would look at when you see this image is you think, those are cute little ears. Well, those aren't ears. Those are his antennae. But did you know that moths have ears? As a matter of fact, they have some of the most sensitive hearing mechanisms known in the insect world. But a remarkable thing is that those ears, are there's no lobes or anything. They're just holes in the side of their little tiny moth heads. And inside their ears, you would find really fine-tuned listening mechanisms. So what's smaller than the ear of a moth? Well, the mites that live inside a moth's ear. Uh, remarkably, every moth apparently has them but they can only have a mite in one of their ears. If there's mites in both of their ears, they can't fly with any balance and they go spinning into cartwheels. So my question is this, how do the mites know when they arrive 
that that ear is already occupied? Is there like a little no vacancy sign? What is it that illuminates their mind to understand, oh, I can't go to this moth? The bug's life is fascinating to me, especially when I come to the bombardier beetle. I find him fascinating for a couple reasons. I need to show you this. When you see the bombardier beetle, you're looking at a little gas that he explodes. It comes out of a couple chambers in his body, and it puts out not only a smell, it puts out a horrible burning sensation. That's why it's called the bombardier beetle. The two chemicals explode on contact, and they leave a memory with whatever's trying to eat them. Here's the thing about bombardier beetles. I want you to see the next, yeah, you're looking at it right now. You see the two chambers. We're going to keep that up there for just a second. Just drink this in. They have two chemicals in their body that mix perfectly at the right moment when they're fired. Now, here's the thing about them. Those two chemicals unite and explode outside of their body. They never mix prematurely or they would explode the beetle from the inside and blow up the beetle. So here's a question I would ask Mr. Darwin, and I would ask this in genuine meaning. How does a beetle evolve explosives within their body and keep them separate? I want to know. I want someone to explain that to me. It's part of the fascination of creation. When we arrived at the point where we had microscopes, scientists could study this, and they dissected these things, they couldn't explain it. The, the components alone are so fascinating that today the United States Air Force is trying to study them to see if it will help pilots when they go into the upper stratosphere. How that bug is keeping those gases separate without an explosion within its body. Very fascinating. In 1828, there was a craze that was sweeping Europe. The craze was beetle collecting. Darwin was caught up in it himself. He was a young man. He was part of the beetle collecting craze. They didn't have fun, fascinating things to do on the weekend like TikTok, and so they, so they went beetle collecting. And they were fascinated with beetles. And so Darwin, when he's caught up in this, he's got one in his left hand, he's got one in his right hand, and he's looking at a tree in front of him, and he sees this dead piece of bark, and he's thinking there's some beetles behind that. So he frees up his fingernails to pull bark off from the tree, and he sees a beetle that he's never recorded before, and none of his friends have. He wants that beetle so bad that he takes the beetle from his right hand and pops it into his mouth in order to be able to reach the beetle that's on the tree. And in the moment that he does it, you guessed it, a little explosive jet went off. And this is what's recorded in his diary. One of his friends put this down in the biography that they wrote about Darwin in 1828. The beetle ejected some intensely acrid fluid which burnt his tongue, and Darwin was forced to spit it out. Well, yeah, I would have spit it out before it exploded in my mouth. And if you're a creationist, you would say, sweet justice. These are the things that God declares that I want you to know me. I want you to pay attention, even through bugs that squirt explosives out of their butts. God screams, pay attention, because it is unimaginable that such power and such intricacy could be developed by anything other than design. He wants us to know him. 
And, and some in the modern world of science have come to the point where they've run up against so many walls they can't explain it anymore. They finally have to come to the conclusion there's something to this creation account. I've told you before about Dr. Robert Jastrow. I quoted him back during the Hard Question series. Not the quote that I'm going to give you today, but he wrote a great book called God and the Astronomers. He was an atheist who was leading NASA's Goddard Space Center. And after leading the astronomical division, he finally wrote this book because he came to some conclusions. Let me show you his quote. The astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. Just stop a minute. Do you think that sentence got him in trouble? In his peer-related environment. That's a huge statement. Keep going. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. Ezra writes in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. God gave us the account of creation, and he communicates to us so that we would know him and treasure him and bring glory to him. But the New Testament, it actually takes this issue of communication a step further. It, it actually says through creation, we discover not only can God be known? The New Testament actually says we're accountable for what we do know. Romans chapter 1, look at Paul's argument. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You can see it in a magnificent star or the backside of a bug. God's saying, pay attention. This knowledge of me, it cannot be discarded. You cannot unsee it. Today, our knowledge of the heavens far surpasses any previous generation. The same is true of the microscopic world. Not only does creation speak, but as you listen and as you look with any kind of depth whatsoever, you come face to face with the immense majesty of God. And Scripture says, therefore, you're without excuse. You know these things. Psalm 33, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. See, I would contend that creator God is the most important truth, and therefore, it's the most assaulted truth. Because if you can get rid of creation, you get rid of a creator. And when you get rid of a creator, it leaves individuals free to live however they want to live with no accountability. It's the ultimate form of rebellion. So the Bible argues when you see the massiveness of creation and the complexity that it carries with it, you have a massive responsibility. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 1 says, these things that we're talking about, they are understood through what has been made. 
There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning. It's the word poiema. The word poiema represents through what has been made. Five words in the English language, one word in the Greek language. It's the basis of the word in English, poem. Not just through what has been made, but also the workmanship, the poem of God. Do you ever think of yourself that way? We're told that we are his workmanship. You're created in God's image. You're part of the poem of God. And he's telling a story. He tells a story through you. He tells a story through all of creation. And he says in every age, humanity has had ample opportunity because I've been writing God all the way across the sky. And the one who refuses that has no defense, not because we don't have knowledge, but because we refuse the knowledge that we do have. Uh, as a Christ follower, I can begin to feel a little smug about these things. Like I see things that other people don't. There's a real danger in that. Lest I begin to feel superior, I need to be reminded. I need perspective again because I too have rebelled against God. So have you. We've all rebelled at some point. We all have sin. Titus 3.3 says this, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I love the reality of what's being communicated through this. What's being communicated is that God is a communicator. And he communicates his desire that we would know him and love him and treasure him intimately. You can have an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with the creator because his greatest act of communication is that in while we were still sinners, he demonstrated his own love for us. Remember that? That sounds familiar from scripture, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. What an act of communication on God's part. I'm grateful this landed on Communion Sunday because very possibly you could become so in awe of the facts of these giant stars that you lose perspective of the one behind the stars, the creator who also became your savior. And he is unimaginably, fantastically, unspeakably glorious Yet he's mindful and interested in you. If you believe that, say amen. That's Jesus. He's that intimately concerned for us. That God the Son who could speak all of these things became Jesus the man. Our tradition at New Hope is always read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 before we pick up the elements. And I'm just going to read that paragraph to you. If you're new here, we invite you to come up to one of the tables or in the back. It doesn't matter which table. You can go to any of them and pick up the juice and the bread. And we'll take communion together. But Paul reroutes us in reminding us what happened in just a paragraph. He says it this way in verse 23 of chapter 11. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the warning that's attached with it. Lest we take these things too lightly. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we allow this time for you to examine yourself. Our communion table is open for those who are believers in Christ. You wouldn't want to take it if you're not a believer. Because when you hold the cup and you hold the bread, you're essentially witnessing to the person on your right and your left. I believe this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we take it together, we'll be doing that in unison, declaring that you believe that Jesus died for you and that he's coming again. So this time right now is for you to examine yourself. Where are you at in your relationship? Do you have any unconfessed sin that you haven't dealt with? Whenever you're ready, come up to one of these tables. Pick up the elements, take it back, and I'll talk you through the rest. He's faithful, isn't he, church? So faithful. I was sitting there thinking, I wonder what it was like on the day of creation when he called grapes into existence and wheat, knowing that it would be used to represent his own death and sacrifice for us. What an awesome God. Would you stand with me if you're able to do that? Let's uh, take the elements together. Paul writes that on the night that he was betrayed, he held up bread and he said, this will represent my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup. We believe it was the third cup in the dinner. He said, this cup will represent my blood, which is shed for you. Father, we praise you for the reality that you are the ultimate communicator. And no greater way could you communicate for us than to spread your arms open on that cross. To remind everybody that you came for us, regardless of our past. Your willingness to forgive us is without measure. It's greater than the stars in the sky. We praise you for that. We praise you for the reminder that each of us have just received and the declaration that each of us have just made to the person on our right and on our left that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice for us. And we praise you in the majestic name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.